What's up, guys? This is your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and you are listening to episode 14 of Behind the Facade, where I explore the mental and emotional game that plays out subconsciously in your mind and the minds of everyone else in the real estate and property market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to get control of your thought process, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So I have caught up with the podcasts being uploaded and it's Sunday the 2nd of August and this episode will air tomorrow morning at 6am. So um, let me see, last week's uh, episode 13 was a Q&A session and um, I've got into a number of different questions on foreign property and if you guys would like to leave further questions for me to answer, I'd be only delighted to, um, to answer them. So the reason I wanted to catch up on the podcasts is because I have an announcement today and it's uh, yesterday was the 1st of August. So this is a, an August announcement. And what I've actually done is I've kicked off, kicked it off with a very tough physical challenge or a stretch goal. And um, what I've announced uh, online yesterday on my Facebook was that during the month of August, I am going to attempt to complete a total of 10,000 burpees. In other words, an average of 325 burpees per day, every single day for 31 consecutive days. So what's tough about that is the need for total consistency. I cannot miss a single day. If I miss a day, then I have to double the extra amount the, the following day. So 650 burpees is not an easy task. So I don't want to miss a single day. And so you can see how it would quickly get out of hand if I did miss a day. So consistency is the key with this particular challenge. So why am I telling you this? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a charity fundraiser and I'd be uh, grateful for anybody who would like to support it. It's for a very good cause. The charity, um, it's actually called Charity Water and it's a cause that I've been supporting for a couple of years. I usually, I contribute a certain amount every month to them and um, and I just think it's a, it's a worthy cause. And during coronavirus and all that kind of stuff, it's very easy to forget that there are charities out there trying to do their work and a lot of the funding has dried up and stuff. So I just thought it was a worthwhile thing to kind of highlight. You'll find details of my challenge on my GoFundMe page or my Facebook profile. Uh, you just have to look up Gavin's 10,000 Burpee uh, August challenge and it should be one of the search results that comes up first. And um, if you want to donate, I'd be very grateful for that. Second reason I wanted to mention this is because I do think it's a very good exercise in mental discipline to set yourself sort of regular stretch goals. And by that I mean really, really challenging targets for a period of time, whether it's an hour or a week or a month or a year. I mean, a year is hard to, to kind of keep going, but you can set yourself, say, a quarterly uh, target or a monthly target. And by doing this and making it very, very difficult, you have to get super determined, super focused and tenacious. And um, you got to give yourself a target number that seems almost unobtainable. And um, by that, I mean, you, you know, when I set uh, last December, I decided that I was no, not last December. I did the challenge last December, but last October, I decided I wanted to do a thousand burpees in a single in a single go. And um, and I went ahead and I trained for two or three months. And at the end of December, the 30th of December, the day before New Year's Eve, I did a thousand burpees and I did that for a charity as well. 
And the idea of that was that a thousand burpees actually sounded unobtainable to me when I began the challenge. But then you build up the resistance and, the, and all of that. And so it's a good mental exercise. So think of and it doesn't have to be just fitness. This could be, uh, you know, you could do it related to diet. You could do it related to your business, related to income, related to the number of books that you read, you know, anything at all that you feel like challenging yourself where you could benefit from it. And um, so I usually go and look, think of what my max is today. And then I say, OK, I'm going to try and do two or three X that. And you give yourself, say, a month to pull it off. And uh, you can apply it. As I said, you can apply it to pretty much anything. Just last week, I set myself a challenge and I did a 36 hour fast. And uh, so at 7 p.m. on Wednesday last week, I stopped eating and I went through the entire of Thursday without eating a single thing. And then through the night uh, and then on Friday morning at 7 a.m., it was uh, 36 hours that I hadn't eaten. And I actually did a workout and a run that morning as well, just to kind of double up the, uh, the difficulty level. And it's just mental exercise. I like to set these things because I believe your, your, your sort of mental strength is a muscle that you actually have to train and um, you have to work on it. And if you're going to do this stuff every day, you're going to be far stronger down the road than you would be. And, and you're, if the kind of discipline and patience and resilience and restraint that I talk about in this business that's necessary, it doesn't just come along. You really you do have to kind of work on it. And these are just ways to build mental strength. And when you have mental strength, then you can find an awful lot easier. And also the resilience will be very good for you in the event that you go into a negative cycle and you're and you're facing some very big challenges. And I found that when I, in 2008, 2009, back in that time when the whole market collapsed, I mean, I was under enormous stress. I had a lot of, I owed a lot of money to a lot of different banks and they were coming after me and they were, the stress was enormous. And what I found was that by getting into exercise and just deciding to kind of make the focus of the day exercise, it allowed me to kind of get that strength I needed just to kind of pull through. And so anyway, that's my 10,000 burpee August challenge. And again, you'll find that over on the GoFundMe page or my Facebook um, profile. And if you want to follow me on uh, my daily progress with the actual challenge, you can find me on Strava uh, and Freeletics. Those are apps that I use on the iPhone and you'll find me using the handle Gavin J. Gallagher. Speaking of being consistent, I wanted to give a very quick shout out to Ollie, who is a listener and sent me a very nice message on LinkedIn. Um, he mentioned various things, but what he did suggest was that I maintain my weekly consistency and uh, that other podcasts that he listened to, sometimes they, they drop off here and there and they don't give you a reason as to why they dropped off. And he says it's, it's not a great thing to do. So for you guys, my listeners, my audience, I wanted to give you this commitment that every Monday, 6 a.m. Irish time, that is the day that this thing it goes out, come hell or high water. Tomorrow is a bank holiday here in Ireland, so that doesn't make, that's no excuse. The, uh, the podcast is going out tomorrow at 6 a.m. And also bear in mind that my wife Ilga is 38 weeks pregnant and uh, could go into labor at any moment. And so at this stage, uh, I'm still prepared to make that commitment and also the commitment to do 325 burpees a day minimum for the next 31 days, regardless of whether the baby is born or not. So that's the kind of um, 
standards that I kind of set for myself just because the tougher they are, the, the more mental resilience and the mental strength that you have. So that's just a little thing for me. Today's episode, I'm testing out a new format insofar as I'm now going to play you a interview with a friend of mine, Mr. Jerry Tate of Tate Harmer Architects in London. Now, Jerry's firm specializes in sustainable design and low energy housing. And to those of you who enjoy the TV show Grand Designs, Jerry has the honor of uh, not only appearing on it as um, one of the architects of one of the houses that featured, but it's also the show that featured his ho- the house that he built was actually the most watched episode of all time in Grand Designs um, in the show's history. And as Jerry will explain during this interview, he was both a it was both a, a bitter sweet um, experience for him because um, of what happened during it. And I won't spoil the surprise. Jerry went and spent a couple of years in uh, working for a guy called Nick Grimshaw of Grimshaw Architects. And Nick Grimshaw is one of the big um, is one of the biggest architects in the world. He's got one of those practices that has offices all over the planet and um, and he's got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of partners and things like that. So huge firm and Nick Grimshaw won the gold medal and things like that. So Jerry worked for Nick for a couple of years and I do get into asking uh, Jerry what were some of the sort of the great behaviors and mindset tricks and stuff that he noticed that uh, Nick Grimshaw had that allowed him to build such a massive firm and such great success around the world. So that's worth um, getting into. Also, one of the projects that Jerry worked on while he was in Grimshaw's was a place called the Eden Project. And um, that's in the UK. And it's a very, very special um, place. And what I'm going to do is I'll actually put a link in the comments below um, and on the show notes, just so that you can go and check that out because it is pretty incredible. So I'm sure you're going to find this episode packed full of tips and strategies. And so without further ado, please welcome Mr. Jerry Tate. All right, uh, guys, we've got a interview today with Mr. Jerry Tate, who is an architect based in London. He has his own firm called uh, Tate Harmer. And uh, welcome, Jerry. I hope you're uh, Hello. Hi. <laughs> hope you're having a good day in London. Yeah. I, thought, um, I thought we'd kick off this morning's talk with a little backstory for the audience. Um, can you tell me about your upbringing and the journey to becoming an architect for, to begin with? Yeah, sure. So, well, um, I, you know, uh, uh, right back, I was always the guy at school who could draw stuff. Do you know what I mean? So I was, I was, I was that guy. And um, uh, what happens is I think at school when you can draw stuff, but you also pass all your exams, they sort of tell you, you can't just be an artist. You've got to be something else other than that. So that's sort of steered me um, into, into architecture, I have to say, really at first. And um, I uh, had a lovely, uh, you know, lovely upbringing in Suffolk, uh, you know, a really great time playing in the woods and sort of the valleys and slightly Winnie the Pooh kind of upbringing, but actually also weirdly um, quite lonely, uh, uh, interestingly. So I, uh, there wasn't a lot of people about basically. I mean, that's Suffolk for you. It's countryside, you know, it's middle of nowhere. Uh, so one of the things that I think I've always been trying to do then, because I moved then to London pretty quickly, you know, because I thought, well, that's where the people are. I'm going to go to London. And then you go to London, there's lots of people and you're not lonely anymore. It's fantastic, but there's no nature. I mean, suddenly, I mean, actually there is some nature in London. There's lots of trees and there's lots of parks and I'm very grateful for that. But the truth is you do quite a lot of the time feel a bit 
disconnected from this sort of uh, natural environment that you were in as a kid. So I suspect that most of my career is trying to square that circle really about <laughs> how do you create you know, an environment that feels like you're connected to nature, but also allows you to have this kind of social interaction all the time to stop, stop you feeling, you know, a bit bored. And um, I think that's, that's sort of where, 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 where I came from. Um, I studied at Nottingham and UCL Bartlett and then Harvard, um, basically. So I did kind of like lots of different places to study at, which is, by the way, something I recommend everyone does, especially studying abroad. It's brilliant studying abroad because it makes you realise that a lot of stuff you've assumed is is actually just your context if that makes yeah. sense so it's, it's not it's not actual real you know there's yeah, yeah. wherever you are there's a context in which you're in and that's how you see the world and so the east coast of america actually sees the world remarkably yeah. differently interestingly from from europe um and uh, then i worked for grimshaw basically so i, I worked for um uh, a company called grimshaw architects for nick grimshaw who's a fantastic architect he's, he's uh won the gold medal last year but he's very eminent uh he was the president of the royal academy and stuff like that but uh, nick's a really good role model because he is a really really decent chap like he's always polite and he's always nice and he's very generous and he makes sure people are okay and all those kind of things and one of the jobs that i worked with at grimshaw was the eden project so i was the project architect um for part of it for um uh, mainly for the education building, but also for sort of wider master plan bits and finishing the biomes off and stuff like that. Can you just, for, for the purpose of, like, some of the audience will not have uh, heard of the Eden Project before. Yeah. Give us a little overview of what that is. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about, but just for, for somebody who's never heard of it, can you give us an overview? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, so the Eden Project is, it's a large essentially a large uh, series of greenhouses and gardens based in a quarry in Cornwall uh, and they're very very large greenhouses so they're sort of big ETFE domes the biggest one is the size of Trafalgar Square and wow. you can fit Nelson's column in it so so it is sort of very very large and Eden's Eden was founded by Tim Smith and Jonathan Ball and their mission was to make people understand how amazing plants are um, and and how reliant we are on them so they are about sustainability, but that's not actually their main focus. Their main focus is on plants. So the point about Eden is that they, they wanted to have uh, uh, proper ecosystems which demonstrate how plants work. So the, the biome that is the size, so the domes are called biomes, and the biome that is the size of Trafalgar Square is the largest uh, working rainforest in captivity, if you like. Wow. So the, the, there are rainforests you can go to, which are kind of like examples of trees, but their one is a proper running ecosystem with things like bullfrogs in it and the right kind of birds and everything. Uh, it's a wonderful, really, um, uh, really, you know, overwhelming place actually when you walk around it, you know, when you're inside the middle of it, it feels like you are in the middle of a rainforest in Malaysia or somewhere. Wow. Like wow. That. Yeah. And the point about a kind of an immersive environment like that is it, it's Eden was also started by some quite clever educationalists actually and and it's an immersive educational tool so if i said to you why the rainforest is really important so if i explained to you that you know something like 70 to 80 percent of all our species are in the rainforest or the fact that it cools the earth down by about four or five degrees or all of those things that's all data and you might think well that's great you know but it wouldn't actually change your mind it wouldn't make you get persuade it, you mm. persuade you in a way that would change your behavior you know, so so Eden thing is about changing behaviour. So 
the reason that they've got like a rainforest instead of explaining to you how amazing a rainforest is, is by the time you've walked around the rainforest, it would take you about an hour and you'd come out and then you would understand how amazing rainforests are. You just kind of intuitively get it because you've been immersed in that environment. Um, and, and, and then they've got you, right? And then they can tell you, well, this is what you need to do to make sure the rainforest doesn't, doesn't go, you know? And so uh, and that's sort of a really good education tool. Like, I think it's every 10 minutes, some, a part of the rainforest, the size of the one at Eden that you've just walked around disappears permanently. Wow. It's gone. Yeah. In Brazil and places, yeah. In Brazil, yeah, because there's, a, there's, a, there's an awful lot of deforestation that's going on there. Um, you know, in the same way as actually we, we deforested the UK, we just, we did it about, you know, 1200 years ago. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> when, and Ireland too, yeah. Yeah. So, but, I mean, so that, that's basically, that, that, that's what they're doing. And it, it's, it's, it's a lovely place. It's really amazing. And it's a sort of immersive education environment full of people who are passionate about, you know, plants and biology. Um, and they are also about sustainability, but, but as a kind of product of that, if you like. Um, one of the things that I really like about, I've gone off on a tangent, I'm sorry about this, but one of, <laughs> I really, back in a second. one of the things I really like about their angle on sustainability is it is a positive message. And, and this is one of my really big things about sustainability is it's too easy to be negative and to wag fingers and to say, you know, if you don't do something, the world's going to end and you're going to have a horrible time. So, you know, you have to have a slightly worse time of it and then you'll be okay. Um, and actually it's a much more positive message to say, if you lived in tune with nature, you know, you might have better food, you might have better clothes, you might have a better life, you might have better health, you know, you might find that you'll feel more connected to nature. Um, there, there's all these sort of benefits that you could demonstrate, which show that actually making a choice to be sustainable isn't something which is going to make your life worse, it's going to make your life better. So to positively know. reinforce it, basically. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of positive messaging. And Eden, that's what Eden puts forward as a message. And that's something that Tim's always talking about is, you know, this is going to be better. You're going to have better life, better sex, better, better food, better everything. And, uh, and I think that's, that's a much more positive message. And it also changes the way then you approach sustainability. Because right. if it's not just about using less, it's about being more in tune you know, creating a circular economy, um, uh, uh, communicating with each other more. There's kind of social, me social message in there as well. So right. it's a sort of much broader message than just, you know, using less energy, say, which is important, but only part of the overall equation, really. I get you. And uh, tell me this. So working for Grimshaw, it's a large global practice. Um, yeah. how, how important would you say it is for people starting out in their career to go and work for some sort of a large practice like that if they have ambitions to start their own so yeah the reason we yeah i wanted to work at grimshaw because uh, primarily because i like their work actually i have to say but i think i'm a great believer in in if you like something if you like what someone does you've got to work for them to understand how they do it if that makes sense so yeah. i really like the work that grimshaw did and i really admired the practice that nick had built so i wanted to work there to find out how he'd done it if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then actually I, 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 I stayed there for about seven, eight years and I, I built a building from start to finish and which is the education building down at Eden. And when I'd done that, I felt like I had learned what I needed to learn at, at, at Nick's practice. And you know, tell me, was there any, was there any standout habits or behaviors that Nick Grimshaw, you know, 
show, you know, demonstrated to you that you realized that's a kind of a, one of the superpowers that'll help, you know, anybody build a business or. Mm, mm. Well, the most important thing I think that Nick was clear about was that um, although the company was called Grimshaw Architects and it had to be because that's just the way the world works, somebody expected somebody to be on top of it and running it. Um, the, it, it was a community and it was a communal effort and the architecture is a team game essentially. So I think that there's a lot of sort of misinformation about a genius architect sitting there doing fabulous sketches with a thick pen and then other people make it happen kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just not true. And especially not as someone like Grimshaw, Grimshaw buildings come a bit from the big pen stuff, but they also come from really careful analysis of the site and the brief and an understanding of the technology you're going to make the building from and an understanding of sustainability. You know, they're very clear that buildings are a product of all these overlapping um, opportunities, restrictions, creative thoughts. And that doesn't all just come from somebody sat there with a big pen. You know, yeah. it comes from the team game of everyone getting all of this together to, to, to see what then comes out of this process. And, and Nick was always very clear that, you know, from a very early stage, he had proper partners. You know, actually, the most fantastic thing Nick did was when he wanted to step back, he put all of his shares into an employee trust and gave it to the company and just said, right, you guys, just, just you go, you know, wow. and, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remain helping you out, but I'm, I want you to run yourselves kind of thing. So he's always very clear that it wasn't all about him. And it was a team game architecture. And I think that's just so important because people get wrapped up into this kind of egotistical mindset of there's a genius in, in the top and everyone else is doing their bidding. And it's, yeah, it's a team game. Yeah, it's completely untrue. It's just not how, especially not in modern day buildings where it's a fantastically complicated operation to make a building now. And, and you know, I, it's impossible for me to understand how exactly how a heat pump works. I've got a vague notion, for example, but a heat pump or an AC unit or an air handling unit or um, exactly how a, a triple glazed window works in terms of every single component, and how it all goes together. I can know broadly, but I won't know exactly it. So really a lot of architecture is about coordinating and uh, getting your team to all function both inside your company and outside as well. Uh, yeah. yeah. There you go. That's a big thing from Grimshaw. <laughs> that's great. I mean, it's uh, certainly you talk about ego there, and that's something that I've kind of reinforced multiple times on this yeah. podcast. I've, I've talked about the fact that it can be one of the most damaging things is an ego. If you if it's if you let it run wild, it can cause all sorts of headaches and things like that. But it's usually further down the road. You don't initially see it at the outset. Mm. Uh, the damage is done kind of slowly but surely, and, and it's very hard to reverse later on. So you started your own firm and give us an impression. I mean, starting any kind of a business is very challenging. Can yeah. you give us an idea what say the, the six months prior to starting your business looked like? Because I, I'm guessing that there was some prep work and, and you kind of had this idea before you pushed the button to kind of go. Uh, was there a kind of a trigger moment that kind of brought it all together? Um, yeah. Well, weirdly, I always wanted to start my own firm. Uh, because uh, I kind of knew that was in my mind. And I spoke to my wife, Siobhan, <laughs> who sort of said, I think you've got to do it now. And if you don't do it now, it's going to be very difficult. You know, yeah. and, I, and I knew there was a sort of time scale. And I was, it's very hard to start a firm with no work if you're an architect, you know. So uh, 
really it was about getting my first job. So uh, I was at a barbecue, basically, and there was a, a, a lovely couple there, Nat and Lucy, and we were talking about it, and they said they wanted to build an eco house. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting because I'm doing the Eden project at the moment, but, you know, I quite like to do an eco house. Uh, and basically they, uh, they said, oh, well, why didn't you do it then? And then we had a big sort of chat. And there was a kind of six months, you know, will they, won't they sort of thing. And actually, the truth is, I started my company off the back of that job, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, so then that project was on Grand Designs. So we have a teleprogram in, in oh, okay. yeah. called Grand Designs, which is, which is sort of Kevin McLeod presents. I, I know it well. Yeah, I love that program. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's... there's um, but, it, but it started, actually, it, it was quite a difficult job because Nat then got um stomach cancer actually and and died quite quickly oh wow uh, so we'd kind of set the project up to go in one direction and suddenly there was less money available um so we had to kind of uh, rework the project to make it sort of smaller and essentially slightly more economic um and uh, we also had then had to help lucy kind of build it because it was really nats a lot of it had been pushed through by nat and and and, and lucy wasn't sort of um in tune with all of it as it were as, as a project so it had quite a sort of difficult beginnings really wow. um and but then it got built and then it was on grand designs and um it was a very nice house you know like it did work you know and sometimes projects everything just kind of goes right just everything kind of went right it was fine it was good it's great and and it was quite a nice project in that what Nat wanted to do was build um, a low energy house. At that point, this was 2008, nine. At that point, and it seems strange to say this, but a lot of eco houses were a little bit strange. Yeah. You know, they're, they're a bit kind of quirky, you know, uh, and Nat wanted to have a house that normal people would look at and say, that's a nice house kind of thing. I'd like that house, you know, and it wasn't too weird, you know, but strategically everything in it worked really well. It fitted well. You know, and it was just a kind of nice eco project that was fabric led and all that kind of thing. Fabric first. So it's like well insulated, triple glazed, all these kind of things. Uh, and it just worked really well on that front. It was like just a really good prototypical um, low energy house. And actually now people are much more used to the idea of a low energy house and kind of what that means for an aesthetic and stuff like that. Right. Um, so it's the most watched um, episode of Grand Designs uh, ever, of course, because actually when you played it back within an hour i mean it's interesting when things happen to you over a three-year period in your life and then they happen in an hour it's yeah. very dramatic so the the episode was very dramatic uh well, you know watching the client dying in the middle of it wow uh, I mean. yeah yeah it was really and it's quite tragic actually and of course it um uh, so that was i have to say a sort of remarkable launch pad for our Free practice yeah. really and yeah. and we then for about a five-year period did um, a lot of low energy houses for people, which was really great fun. And we really loved it. And what I particularly liked is they weren't all houses for posh people. They were sort of three, four bed houses for sort of middle-class people who just wanted to kind of change. They wanted to retune their lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? They, they live somewhere right now and they wanted to live more in tune with, you know, a lower energy consumption, a more sustainable life. And quite often they were getting a little bit further out into the countryside, you know, and that, that was lovely work. Um, and, then after doing that for about five years, we, we sort of got the hang of it, you know, very nice stuff. Um, but we thought we should probably start kind of broadening our net, if you like, yes, as a practice. Yes. We thought, well, we should probably do start doing some other stuff, you know, along the same lines. Um, 
and what's quite interesting is you know through doing the houses we learned a lot of stuff sort of we'd learned how to get planning permission in very difficult places because quite often they're very sensitive sites or they were historically listed buildings we'd learned how to actually build something that's very sustainable so we'd learned how to do triple glazing and super insulation and mvhr and all these technologies are now much more widespread but we kind of built them you know 23 times now um and so we started doing other projects so actually now we do um so we've been working we're going for another six years beyond that now so we're going for 11 years and now we do uh, hotels uh we do a lot of kind of leisure work for people like the national trust uh, we do education work for um both private schools and for universities so we're, we're we're building at the moment on in york for york st john university we're building kind of big theater and creative teaching space and a big sort of timber framed atrium collaborative area um uh, and uh, we're working for Watergate Bay Hotel. We're doing a hotel for the Eden Project. So we still work for the Eden Project quite a lot. We're doing lots of different things and sort of big multiple housing schemes as well. But it all comes from the same place. It all comes from wanting to combine side of nature with sustainable buildings in a kind of simple way. You know, we, we always try to keep things from getting too complicated with having a sort of holistic approach to it. So making sure that it's not just about energy and water, it's also about how you want to live. And we always try to make sure that we understand that with people or organisations. Uh, and, and, and that's really, a lot of our work is kind of very similar, although it crosses lots of sectors and it comes from our kind of base of uh, those first eco houses, basically. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, great. it's great to make a name for yourself in that sort of sector, because I do think, I, I certainly see it here in the business park, I see it, a big shift towards sustainability and mm. uh, sustainable operations and just generally it's going in that direction. Mm. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you, you, you know, building your business now for 11 years, what, um, what of your own habits and behaviors and mindsets would you say has made the greatest impact on the business? Is that, have you had to change any behaviors and over the years or your mindset since you began? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I made a mistake at the start actually uh, in Total Trees because I, I started and I called it Jerry Tate Architects and I did that on purpose and I thought, well, uh, it's only me, right? So, you know, I'll, uh, I'm running around doing all this. So, so that's that. And of course, actually, five years in it wasn't just me there was you know 10 of us and it was becoming a problem because if you call yourself jerry to architects and then you're not at the meeting whatever that meeting is people are like well where's jerry yeah you can't be at every meeting it's impossible and actually once again you're back to that thing that nick had told me to be fair before i started that it is not about you it's a team game you have to make it into a team game so at that point we reframed it and uh, I made uh, Rory, who started with me at the very start, I made Rory a partner and we turned it into something that was clearly an organisation, not a person, if you see what I mean. And that was, the, that was actually the biggest um, change in my mindset about the company, that I'm creating a framework within which people do work rather than I'm doing the work. So one of the best things that happened to me was I, I, I read Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. And he makes a point about, you know, he founded Pixar with John Lasseter and with um, Steve, uh, Jobs. Steve Jobs. And his thing is, well, actually, if you're running a creative company, it's not, you're not driving the train. You're actually laying the track, if that makes sense. You, you have to know that you are laying the track, not driving the train. If you're driving the train, you're probably stood in the wrong place. And I had, I had a similar thing 
for I've got a mate called Tom Griffiths who founded something called gapyear.com who he sold to I think Amazon or someone like that for a lot of money. Um, gapyear.com. Gapyear.com, which was in the times when gap year is a big thing and it was the place you went to find out about your gap year. And his point was, you know, you think that when things are difficult, you should be in the engine room shoveling coal with everybody, but then they don't want you to shovel the coal. They expect you to be stood on the bridge looking at where you're going, right? And, and so that, that was like the, the big mindset change for me was that we're creating an organization here we're not creating something that's built around me. Do, do, do you see what I mean? It's like a massive change in my mindset. And, and it happened five years in where it's like, aha, right. You know, so now um, I still, you know, do a lot of sketching and I still do creative work and I'm still interested in what's happening, but I don't do all the work, you know, like really the point is to set up a system where people are able to do the best creative work they possibly can. That's actually my job to make a thing where everyone can do the best work they can. So everything here in the, in like talking back to physical office environments earlier, we were talking about what's important about a physical office environment, you know, where I am now, we have everything that I think we need to be able to work well. So we've got a big open meeting table. We've got a big screen. We've got a pinup ball. We've got a proper model making area. You know, there's everything that I think an architecture studio requires to let people do the best work they can. And I think that is the point of an architecture office. It's not actually just a place for people to kind of sit at computers. If you see it. it's a thing that enables them to do the best they've ever worked in their life, you know, and it's the same for university environments. It's the same for all creative environments, actually, that the physical manifestation of it is just, it's just a prop for people to do the best work they can, whatever that is. Um, Interesting. You know, my, um, my, my background is I actually started out as an architect myself. Did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I did read a little bit of that. Yeah. 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 And you did some property development as well. Yeah. Right? Well, the funny thing is, is I, I, I was, I can relate to your story about being the, the kid in school who could draw because that was exactly me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I was the same. And then I went on a trip, family trip to America and we, we spent a couple of days in New York city and I was just going around looking at the skyscrapers and just being like, in awe at these huge things. And I came back with a firm conviction that I wanted to be an architect and I wanted to do that kind of, you know, thing, huge buildings and stuff. Brilliant. So that was what kind of drew me into it. And, uh, but I remember this, the transition I, I did, it took a year out when I worked in a, I took a year out from college just mm. after my dad died. And I decided I'd do a year working for a firm called Scott Talon Walker. And they're, mm -hmm. a, they're a big firm here in Dublin. Mm. And um, well, that was just great. I enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed working for them. And uh, there was a guy there called Eugene McLaren, who I was working with. And um, he was, he's like a mentor of mine and just mm. a fantastic guy to work for. But um, I can remember I used to draw. So I, I had my rotring pens and we used to do, you know, the lines. And I, I was I love that. I yeah, used to do yeah. all the pen work and the penmanship and stuff. And I, and I really enjoyed that kind of artistic kind of outlet and the creativity of it. Yeah. And then I went back to college and I did two more years of, of college before mm -hmm. graduating. And then I went straight back to the same firm and yeah. sitting on the desk was a computer and a mouse. And oh, yeah. I was like, okay, here you go, Gavin. And I was like, what, what's this? You know? And I had to learn how to do AutoCAD. Mm. Um, from scratch mm. and so I was I was working there and I remember just the sense of um, the sense of enjoyment kind of slipped away from me uh, that because I really enjoyed that creative penmanship and suddenly clicking a mouse and stuff it just it removed some of the the romance in it for me uh, just that aspect 
And, mm. and that's when I started saying, right, I'm going to have to go out on my own if I want to, if I want to become more than the kind of the CAD jockey that's sit, sitting there. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Around all day, so. I, I think actually it's quite interesting that because in terms of like, what, what are you using to be creative in is, is really important and what, what tools are you operating in? Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 there's one thing there, which is that um, both in, you know, we, we, I teach at UCL and, and in practice, me and Rory are very clear about you're not always sat at a computer, you know, because if you are, there's something wrong. You've got to build a physical model. You've got to do a sketch. You've got to kind of rotate between mediums because otherwise you're missing something. You know, it's, it's never about sitting, you know, it's never about sitting there working really hard forever kind of thing. You've got to stop and take a step back. And, and we also do design reviews. We do every Monday, we spend the whole day doing design reviews where we kind of pin, physically pin stuff up. Or, or recently, actually, we're doing MS Teams run through PowerPoint. It's not quite the same, but, you know, have a look at it and, and, and just, you know, are we doing the right thing here? Is this right or not? Because if you don't do that, you get sidetracked. And does everyone participate in the office? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not every, sometimes people want to do some work and they don't want to participate, but it's not, it's not obligatory, you know. But yeah, no, everyone's, I mean, it's back to this thing of everyone has a really good point to make. And quite often, because I'm a bit old and gnarly, you know, I'll miss something. I, I won't, I've already got too many shortcuts in my head and I won't think of something kind of slightly off the wall, you know. And then someone who, frankly, has less experience than me will say something which is really interesting because they haven't shortcutted it in their head. You know, so it's not always that experience is um, useful. Interestingly, sometimes it's a good mix is what you need, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a bit sad here. story about digital production. I think the digital production in architecture has taken a long time to get to a good place. I think it's now starting to get there again, but I think when people first started uh, getting rid of drawing boards and bringing computers, what you did at the computer was an exact replica of what you did on the drawing board, just less fun. So, yeah. so I used to really like, you know, the rotary stuff. When I, when I started my career, it was just at the end of that, but I was really good at it and I loved it, you know, yes. and then, and then, and then it's just not the same doing that line, but clicking it on a computer is not the same. But, but now, as you know, we actually, most of our work is done in something called building information modeling, which is a, which is a sort of intelligent 3d environment where, yeah, it's totally different. Totally different, yeah. So you're actually making um, a little 3D model of the building in the computer and it's got all the door handles in it and the hinges and things. So it kind of spins into construction information. But you can press a button now and walk around it. It's yeah, brilliant. It's, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And it's so much more powerful when you think back to the old unit, AutoCAD Release 4. It's the same company, you know, but with AutoCAD Release 4, there was none of that. So, so it has sort of... I think it's taken about 20 years really for digital production and architecture to get back to a sort of more joyous place, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It does, yeah. So, so tell me, I wanted to ask you actually about some of the clients that you're working with. Um, I'm, yeah. I mean, without naming names or anything like that, but <laughs> I'm sure you, you've, you've, you've worked with some successful people that, um, and, and I'm just wondering, have you seen any sort of common traits uh, amongst the successful guys that kind of stands out as to why they're successful, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, some of our clients, I have to say, have um, a very clear um, a sort of ethical or really it's like a standpoint on, on life and what they're trying to achieve. And I, and I think that's one of the strongest things I've seen 
in an organization that means that you can then produce good work for them and everyone kind of knows where they're going so and that can relate to an individual it can also relate to like an overall company although quite often it's an individual who's kind of leading driving that process if you like you know or driving it yeah driving through what the vision is but you know um if you imagine because of the kind of practice we are you know a, a lot of people working for either they are kind of uh, educational or leisure um but they'd be a lot of them are about access to nature uh, or about outdoors or about sustainability or that's the same with the kind of cultural sector or if we're you know in our hotel clients a lot of them are still about you know creating a kind of sustainable approach to it and and you know when you stay at them you feel more in touch with nature and and housing you know if someone comes to us for housing development they're probably looking to develop a product which is not a standard Barrett product, you know, not to be horrible to Barrett, I shouldn't be horrible because some things they do are actually quite good. But, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, a kind of linked landscape, low energy, positive carbon, you know, people can live a better lifestyle kind of thing. And all of those clients without fail have developed a really clear vision about what they are trying to achieve in the world. And it, it always has profit as a component, but it only has profit as a component within kind of broader spectrum of what they're out to achieve you know yeah it's a good so, point i i talk about the, having a roadmap from the outset of your career and kind of knowing where you want to end up rather than kind of bouncing along just kind of you need to have a, a clear vision of what you're about what your values are and things like that at the outset um that's interesting it makes it much um as someone working for them say it's once you get their vision normally you can get it quite quickly it's it's actually um not simpler i would say but you know what you have to achieve to you know you know where you're trying to get to because you 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 know where they're trying to get to you know and they don't know what they've employed you because they don't know what a building looks like that meets their vision so they quite often know what their vision is but they don't know what the building is that ties yeah. in with that vision and your job is to create the kind of physical manifestation of their vision and you know it when you've got it they know it too They're like ah oh, that's it you know right that's us brilliant you know um anyway so yeah so i'll say uh, that's the clearest you know, thing and in terms of i mean obviously there's a big shift towards sustainability and uh, i'm seeing it here in in our business park um I was wondering, have you noticed any other emerging trends that are standing out as um, part, uh, you know, slipping into the day-to-day -day requests from clients and things like that? Is there anything that stands out in your mind? Mm. Well, I think that there's something that goes hand-in-hand -hand with sustainability, and it sort of ties back with the thing I was talking about earlier, which, which is health and well-being. So I think that well, there are, yeah, it's a balance, wanting to live a sort of balanced life and wanting to lead a kind of healthier lifestyle. So, so normally all of the things that we're doing with sustainability so where we're trying to create something that uses less energy or is timber framed has less embodied carbon is always going hand in hand with linking with nature creating a better lifestyle um you know giving you a healthier environment in which to live all those kind of things so, so those two things are sort of meshing together now as, as a sort of future vision about how we want to live as 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 the human race really and I think actually that's quite exciting because yeah. previously that hasn't always been the case. There's been, you know, if I think back through previous eras, there's been a lot of talk of, you know, efficiency. There's been a lot of talk of kind of tying in with this kind of new machine age. You know, previous to that, there was a lot of talk of kind of harking back to 
um, a kind of uh, bucolic past, if you like, kind of medieval past where everything was better and wanted to reinvent the Gothic. You know, but where we are now is we know we have to reinvent ourselves. We have to. Yeah. And that's that's right. obvious, right? Yeah. But what we want to do is reinvent ourselves in a way which is more in tune with how we intuitively know we want to live. Uh, and I think that's a really exciting place to be at in history. I mean, it's slightly unnerving because, of course, yeah. we don't know what it is. But uh, I, I think one of the exciting things that we like to think we're doing is, is working inside that process to help it happen. And I think we're one of the many people who are helping develop a vision for that. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And, and do you find, well, I mean, obviously, given the relationships that you have with your clients, and so most of the clients are coming to you because of your reputation. Um, so you don't need to convince people um, to do, you know, to have a sustainable approach to design and stuff. But, but in, say, speaking to the audience on this podcast, mm. if there, what would you say are the principal kind of benefits of actually approaching a sustainable approach to your, your, your design or if you're building something, why should you, why should you employ kind of sustainable methods and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's, I think it's a really good point. And what I, what I would also say is that, you know, even we have a spectrum, right? So, so although we look, if you look at our website, we clearly give you a certain kind of thing within our range of clients. We have, you know, some people who want a passive house, which is very, very, very low energy sustainable building, you know, right through to people who want it to be a bit, little bit better than, the building regs you know and so it's our job to always steer them as much as we can towards the most sustainable solution but you can't your job is to present them with the solutions it's not to make the decisions for them if that makes sense so if they want to make certain decisions you can't stop them making that decision unless you're prepared to walk away from the job which pretty much all architects aren't right most architects want to see a job through you have to be comfortable with showing them what they should do and then going with their decisions so so that's one way of framing sustainability but you know in terms of then what are the advantages of it well there's um there there, there are kind of three things right so thing number one is like direct uh, monetary payback which is always difficult because that's a shifting landscape but in the uk you know there are right now clear payback periods based on things like tariffs or based on saving energy so if you put photovoltaic panels on your roof, the payback is about eight to 10 years. If you build a passive house building, the energy savings you make are 15 to 20 years. Um, I think there should be grants to make that better, but there you go. You know, so if someone says to you, are there monetary payback periods, you can say yes, and you can show what they are and they can make decisions based on that. It's always, that's not a very kind of holistic way of making a decision, but, but it is a clear way of presenting them. Thing number two is like an improved um, outcome, if you like. So there, there isn't enough data on this at the moment, but there are things like there is data on, say, education, that you can get 16% better educational outcomes in an environment which is better connected to nature. So, so if you have uh, a, an environment with good ventilation, good natural daylight, uh, natural materials and some access to a planted outdoor space, you get 16% better educational outcomes. So, so that's something else, which is like a clear um, one-off boom. This, if you do this, you get this sort of thing. Mm, interesting. The, 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 the third thing is, is slightly more complicated to demonstrate. And, 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 and that is a discussion with your client about the broader benefits of what they're doing and a sort of more long-term view to the, um, 
to the uptick of what they're going to do. So, so say we're working a lot with someone with Keyland who are Yorkshire Water up in Eshel, and we've been developing with them a kind of six capitals model where one of those capitals is um, economic, but there's lots of other capitals. There's social capital, there's natural capital, there's economic capital. You know, there's sort of these six um, spheres which they look at overlapping. And the reason they do that is because their ownership always extends massively beyond the bit you're actually doing for them. So we're doing 150 houses for them and a million square feet of commercial. So, so that's the actual job. But of course, they also own 10 times as much land around that. So through the capitals, we can demonstrate essentially an improvement in all of those capitals if they do the right thing on those particular sites. So in the long term, because they're going to keep hold of that land, that's important for them. Um, so it's a sort of it's not quite an easy it's not such an easy sell if you see what I mean because you, you have to kind of do the work on it and you have to then talk to them about the concepts of the capitals and demonstrate that you know improving those all of those capitals for them in the long term is a big benefit and explain why so it's not quite as easy as like if you do this you save this much money or if you do this you get a better educational outcome yeah um, yeah. Well, I think human nature is to kind of just get the best, the fastest payback. And so often you're pushing against that and you're trying to say, no, no, there's a longer term beneficial way to do this. And you just, mm. but, um, we have to kind of condition ourselves to accepting that, you know, there's a bit of sacrifice in uh, sometimes and you don't get paid immediately up front. Sort of the better outcome is often the slower payback over, over a number of years than mm. wanting it all up front, you know. Mm. But it's, it's hard to, I mean, I, I think the other thing I would say is, and I know people always say this, is, is the earlier you think about what your approach to sustainability is, essentially integrating it into your project, the less it costs. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So if you, if you think about it at the end and you've already, you're, you're tied into, you know, inefficient building and you, now you want to make it sustainable, it's very difficult. It's going to cost you money to do it, basically. You know, whereas the earlier you think about it, the more integrated it is, the, the less the less it costs. One of the difficulties I've always thought about this is, is actually quite often sustainable buildings are just kind of slightly better buildings. You know what I mean? Like, like if buildings by us, they tend to have, you know, good even daylight spread. They tend to have good mixed mode ventilation strategies. They, they tend to be slightly nicer places, nicer places to be. They tend to be timber frames. So you've got this nice natural materials. That's just a better building really. Yeah. So quite often then you're comparing it to a building which wouldn't be so nice. And you're saying, well, this sustainability lark, that's adding 10% to the costs here. It's like, well, yeah, but like, if you wanted to just do a better building, that'd be 10% more expensive anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Why not make a better building that's sustainable as well, kind of thing? And, uh, I, 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 yeah, anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks. I'm going to ask just um, three final questions, uh, if that's okay, Jerry. I've gonna, yeah. um, the first one I was going to ask is the best advice you ever got or the advice that you would give your 20 year old self if you were talking to him today mm, okay well I'll, I'll stick to sort of business right because that's kind of what we're talking about we're talking about practices and things like that, starting a practice so there's a bloke called jeff kipnis at harvard who was um uh like a very clever critic and he you know he was, he was a good guy right and he used to get us all around the table and talk to us about how life works kind of thing he didn't need to but he was just he was just quite generous and he really nailed it because he said, look, I'm all of you lot, because it was an international course, right? It was, it was a bit like Top Gun for Architects, not the tosser about thing, but, you know, it's like everyone internationally coming there. He said, I know what you lot are all going to do. You lot all want to go and start your own practices when you get back to Madrid or London or wherever you're from. And you're all worried right now about exactly what kind of practice 
you're going to have, you know, what kind of architect have I kind of thing. It's like the best advice I can give you is you are who you are and the practice will be a function of that. So whatever you are right now, that's it. You know, so you don't need to get all anxious about exactly who you are and exactly what you are. And he was right because, you know, I kind of like come from this place where I've done the Eden project and I, you know, I enjoy nature and I enjoy sustainability, but I want to be social and be active. You know, basically it was already written in the stars. What kind of practice we would get out of this, you know, me and Rory. And I didn't have to worry about it. But actually, I spent ages of time gnashing my teeth. You know, what kind of practice are we going to be? You know, and it, it is what it is. So that's, I wish I'd give myself that advice and not worry about that and actually do something slightly more useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me, are there any books, podcasts, or resources that you'd strongly recommend our audience check out? Yeah. Okay. So I think that um, uh, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in things like uh, E.F. Schumacher, um, Small is Beautiful those kind of books i think that's a really good one to read which was like the, he was the president of the soil association and he was the first one to talk about a kind of uh integrated approach to sustainability which is more about getting in touch with nature so i i think that um uh, that that's a really good book for people to read if you just want to kind of get it really quickly i think that's that's great uh the other book i have to say and i've already mentioned it is ed catmull's uh, Cre- creativity inc which i think is a really it's, it's just a history of pixar but i think it's a really good book about how to set up a healthy design company which has a kind of strong uh grassroots creative base if that makes sense mm-hmm. it does make sense yeah Oh, and your <laughs> podcast is called Scavenger as well, which actually I have been listening <laughs> My to. My podcast is great. <laughs> well, no, I love it. I'll tell you what I like about your podcast is there's a lot of property podcasts which um, are like, um, do it. Do, I mean, yeah, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but uh, uh, there's a lot of property developer podcasts which are like, you know, kind of pumping you up to like, do it, do it, just do it, just do it now. Don't think, do it kind of thing. And your property podcast is like, well, we'll just, you know, work out what you're doing. You know, there's no rush. The world's not going to run out of stuff. You know, you just need to get, to get it right kind of thing you know carefully yeah yeah, yeah. And i think it's a much more uh it appeals to me much more so there you go there you go oh thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then finally um making a positive impact on the world um i guess i'm guessing that's important to you uh given the conversation that we've had so far i'm just wondering if you were to fast forward say 20 25 years and you're looking back on your life and career what do you hope to have uh, achieved in your life um in that regard yeah, well, I think uh, apart from having, you know, I've got three boys who are nice people. I think that would be um, what I'd mainly like to achieve. But outside of that, yeah. Yeah, three, three little boys, and if they don't become nice people, I feel really bad. But outside of that, um, I think as a practice, you know, I know because we've talked about this, we would really like to have some built examples of, uh, you know, buildings that demonstrate what we think the right answer is you know buildings that are creating communities that are linked to the natural world and that tread lightly on the earth they kind of got very low energy water consumption and that didn't cost a fortune to build you know and if we could have just like five of those when people say well how are we going to do this you say well we've done some work here it is you know maybe that's part of the answer if we could do that i'd feel totally happy that'd be great um i you know again it's this thing creating the right kind of buildings for the future it's not just us doing it there's lots of other companies doing really great examples but i think if we can help answer some of those questions through what we're doing i'd feel dead chuffed at the end basically that'd be it 
Great answer. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, thanks very much. I just thought if, um, if, if somebody wants to connect with you uh, socially or online, or how, where's the best place to find you? I'll tell you what, come to our website, tateharmer.com. So that's www.t-a-t-e-h-a-r-m-e-r.com. All of our contact information is there. You can email me. If you go to studio, those come through to me, but also our, our Twitter handles, uh, everything. So I think that's probably the best thing is just go to our website, tateharmer.com. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from people. It's really nice. So uh, yeah, Great. brilliant. <laughs> All right, Jerry. Well, look, thanks so much for being on the podcast and uh, wishing you the best of luck and uh, hope to speak to you soon. Well, thank you, Gavin, for having us. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's, it's, it's lovely to get to chat to you more. Uh, yeah, I must say, I, I really enjoy your take on uh, property and everything. So uh, yeah, great stuff. Oh, Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Gavin. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Jerry Tate. I was a little nervous about changing the format, so I'd really appreciate your thoughts if you could let me know how you found the interview and any suggestions or um, opinions on it and, and ways I could, might be able to improve the, uh, the, the podcast. I have put various links to the different resources and info that Jerry mentions on the sh uh, in the show notes. And um, that's it, guys. Thank you for listening to episode 14. If you enjoyed this, please share it out with someone you feel you might who might enjoy it or benefit from it. If you have any questions or topics you would like covered in future episodes, please leave a comment in the Facebook group that is Behind the Facade Community uh, or my YouTube um, page um, where I now have the podcast going out weekly as well. That is Behind the Facade um, on YouTube. And currently the Facebook group is at 182 members and we're always happy to have more members on board, the more the merrier. So please look it up there behind the facade community. And as always, you can reach out to me directly via social media. I'm, a, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and you'll find me using the handle Gavin J. Gallagher. And don't forget, I have a YouTube channel called PropTech TV too. So that's it, guys. Until next week, take care of yourself. Mm -hmm.